Good morning, Grace Hill. It's good to see all of you this morning. My name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Grace Hill. And this morning, we'll be jumping into John chapter 9 in just a few moments. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and you can get that open to John chapter 9. Uh, Before I jump into our text and the sermon this morning and all of that, I just wanted to take two minutes real quick and just make a couple of comments on the conflict that we're seeing going on in Israel. And really just the more important thing is lead us into prayer. Uh, One of the reasons why I wanted to say a few things is because, first of all, I'm just seeing so many Christian leaders getting on uh, social media, YouTube, you know, all of the different ways that we can communicate now, and just saying so much about this particular uh, conflict. I just felt it would be wise for us to just take a moment uh, to think about it. And obviously, Christians are very concerned about this because it involves the nation of Israel. And I'm seeing a lot of people Uh, making comments about how Christians are obligated to think about this conflict uh, because of the faith, which means that I just wanted to to make a few comments. Um, The first thing I just want to say is, number one, the the attack that Hamas um, perpetuated against Israel uh, was evil, an act of terror, and and, uh, the nation of Israel as a sovereign nation does have the right to respond to that. You know, the end of groups like Hamas who want to see the eradication of certain peoples is only good. Um, And so that's good for the Palestinian people. That's good for the Jewish people. You know, this is a conflict that is thousands of years old, which means it is deeply complex. If you read your Bible, um, you will learn that the Jewish people inhabited this land Um, up until about 586 B.C. And in 586 B.C., this is in your Bibles, uh, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem and carried away the Jewish people from that land. And ever since then, really between 586 B.C. and 1947, um, there was not a Jewish state in that land. It was inhabited by other empires, right? You had the Babylonians, and then you had the Persians, and then you had the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then you had the Romans, and then empire after empire after empire after that, up until the British Empire, which then gave the land uh, back to the Jews to create the sovereign state of Israel in 1947, and obviously there's been lots of conflict ever since. And so the reality is this, that no one could ever expect that that was going to be a conflict-free thing to do, because this is a thousands of years old conflict. And war is not going to solve that conflict. Diplomacy, maybe some band-aids can be put on there. You know, a few treaties, a few accords. It's not going to solve the conflict. Like, only King Jesus can. See, we believe that when Christ returns, one of the things that he's going to do is reconcile all nations. That all nations, all tribes, all tongues will stand before the throne and praise Jesus as Lord and as King. That is a work that he's going to do. And so the response of Christians to conflicts like this and conflicts like we see in Russia and Ukraine and conflicts that we see in Africa right now, in Southeast Asia, I mean, they're everywhere in the world. The response needs to be prayer. Prayer is not trite. It's not trivial. We are praying to the only one who can bring true redemption and healing to the world to do that work. 
And so I just want to lead us into prayer as a church. And I just want to say this. If you want to talk about this, like if you have questions or this is really concerning to you or whatnot, please feel free. Reach out to me. You can email me. My email address is in your bulletin or any of our other pastors and elders. We'd love to set up some time and talk about this. There is so much noise coming to you through your phone, okay, that's going to be confusing on what should I do or think or whatnot. And we just have to be wise in these days, okay? And so we would love to be able to chat with you about that um, and have a conversation. But for right now, I just want to pray. Lead us in prayer um, for this, and then we'll jump into our text this morning in John 9. So let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, and we pray to you knowing that you are the almighty creator. And that you are the sovereign God who is all-knowing. And we don't have your eyes to see the world. We don't have your perspective. We don't know all of the intricacies of your plans. But God, you've revealed to us in your word that your ultimate plan is to bring all of the nations together in reconciliation under the kingship and lordship of Christ. That your ultimate plan is to redeem all of sin and to establish a kingdom for all of eternity that is without conflict and war and sickness and pain and sin An eternity, God, where, as we just sung together, we will all gather around your throne and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, God, we pray for this. We come before you, and we look at conflicts in the world, and we we have to come before the all-powerful one and say, "We, we pray for your return. We pray for you to bring reconciliation. We pray for you to act in a supernatural way that, God, we can't make happen. God, we want to pray specifically for the conflict that's going on in Israel, and we just pray for your restraint upon evil. We pray, God, that you would be with those who are suffering now. God, we want to pray for the families of the innocent Israelis and Palestinians who have lost loved ones. And their days are so uncertain. We pray for the hostages, God, who are so scared. We ask for your mercy and for their release. God, we pray that nations would come together to provide humanitarian relief. God, we pray against other nations seeking to take advantage of this conflict and create more conflict around the region and around the world. We pray for our leaders, that they would have wisdom, that they would be sober-minded, that they would take their role to protect not only our nation, but others seriously, and you would remove any other agenda that might be present. God, we pray for the resolution of this conflict and for peace. And God, we pray for the return of King Jesus, whom you promise is going to make all things new. 
We bring these things before you, God, because you are the all-powerful one. And we know that you hear our prayers. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 9, again, if you have a Bible, we're going to study that together this morning. A few things that I want to say before we jump in together into John 9 is... Uh, John 9 is a messy, gritty passage of Scripture. And so this is going to be a messy, gritty sermon. It's a familiar passage to many of us, especially if you've grown up in church. And so maybe this is something, a story that you've heard over and over again. But as we spend some time to really think about it, I think you're going to be like, this is a little gross this passage of scripture that we're going to read. So as I've been studying it this morning, a couple of things I want to tell you before we jump in, is there is so much in me about like how, what I want to pull out of this passage and teach us and lead us in, so much longing that I have for this church and how we would live this out. And so um, I'm going to do my best to stick to my notes, but probably not going to happen. Um, The other thing I just want to say is there's, there's a part of me that feels led by the Spirit to, to even bring some admonishment from this text to the church. And as I do that, I'm not thinking Grace Hill Church specific. I'm thinking Big C Church that we're a part of and that we have a, a role in. And, and as I bring that, I also want you to know that I don't bring that as the person on the stage who understands and gets and lives it all out, and I'm speaking to all the people who don't, but I'm very much including myself in this as I studied this passage this week and thought about how we as a church, again, Big C Church, just miss it sometimes. And just asking the Lord, Lord, like, help our church to see this and lean into it, even when it's a little gritty, and help me to see this and lean into us, not only as a pastor, but as a follower of Christ, too. John chapter 9, we're in a sermon series called Stories of Belief. There are seven um, stories about Jesus in the Gospel of John that John calls a sign. And, and these signs that Jesus is giving is helping us to understand who Jesus is and why we should believe in him. And so we're going to read about one in John 9. And the thing that we need to remember with this one that we're going to read is that Hebrews 1.3 teaches us that Jesus is, like Jesus in his human form, okay, is the exact imprint of the nature and character of God. So that when we look at Jesus and we look at the things that he says, the things that he does, the things that he teaches, that we are seeing a perfect representation of who God is because Jesus is God. And that's so important that we keep that in the top of our head as we read John chapter 9 together. I think one of the things we're going to learn in John 9 is that God is not glorified in people who are put together. But God is glorified when we let him into our mess. Let's read verses 1 to 3 in John chapter 9. 
We're just going to cover verses 1 to 12 together this morning. It says this, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Such a presumptuous question. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus and the disciples encounter a man, and his world's a mess. He's blind. He was born blind. And so for him, that automatically puts him into a category of people who were kind of cast aside because they were disabled. And so his life is a mess. And so the disciples come upon this man, and their immediate thought, I mean, this just shows you the kind of spiritual formation these guys grew up with. Their immediate thought is, God is distant from this man. Because he's blind. Who sinned? Him? His parents? Obviously, somebody did something wrong, and God is bringing discipline and punishment upon them through this man's blindness. I mean, that's such a presumptuous question to ask Jesus. And so Jesus quickly corrects the disciples and says, it's not that anyone sinned. It's that the glory of God, the works of God might be displayed in this person. No, no, no. no. What you're going to see today is not that God has left this person, but actually I'm going to teach you something about God today that actually this person is blind so that God can show and demonstrate his glory in his life, his very nearness to this person in the midst of of their mess. And so here's what we're going to learn this morning. Most people believe that God is most glorified in the strong. And and you can't read this scripture. It's it's possible to read and study this without paying attention to it. So possible, all right? And you can't pay attention to this scripture and believe that God is most glorified in the strong. God is most glorified in the religious. God is most glorified in the put together. God is most glorified in those who have the perfect church attendance or know their Bible the most. You can't read the scripture and get that. What we're going to learn is that no, God is most glorified in the weak. If we go to John chapter 9 again, if you look at verses 4 and 5, Jesus says a few words about this. It's a little confusing, so we'll kind of parse it out. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, Jesus, what are you, what are you saying? Flip over, uh, keep just going, th- uh, verse 39, all the way in John 9, verse 39. There's this whole episode that we're not going to have time to read all of it. But at the end of this whole episode, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's about to give a sign, and here's what's going to happen. 
that through this sign that Jesus is going to give through this blind man, he's going to show that he's the light of the world. And light will do two things. It illuminates and it exposes. Kind of opposite side of the same coin, right? And what Jesus is going to illuminate through this sign is he's going to illuminate the fact that God himself is most glorified in the weak. And at the same time, he's going to expose those who believe that God is most glorified in the strong. So we're going to parse this out together this morning. But again, the thing that we're going to learn is we have all been, if you, especially if you grew up in the church, it is very possible that we have all been discipled into, spiritually formed as people to believe down to our bones that God is glorified in the strong, not in the weak. And we're not paying attention to the word that we study so much. I think that's going to be illuminated for us this morning and exposed for us this morning. And there might be some exposure that even happens in this room for some of us as we really take a deep look into what do I actually believe about the gospel and how it impacts the way that I live my life and care for and love other people. So let's go to the sign. Verse 6 to 12. What does Jesus do? Verse 6. Wrong page. It says, Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed, I love that, anointed, I lost my place. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. He rubbed the mud made with spit on his eyes and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, yeah, that's me. I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So let's just stop there for a moment. Can I be honest? Like, do you sing the song that we just sang together, Nothing But the Blood? Right? Oh, precious is the flow. I'm talking about blood. That makes me white as snow. Do, do you, does part of you wince when you sing that? Or, or, or we sing songs like, um, uh, 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 no, gosh, now I'm blanking. I used to sing this to my kids all of the time. But we, we, we sing these songs about the flow, the fountain of the blood of Jesus. Does part of that make you wince? 
Like, especially if you are not a follower of Jesus and you're like, maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm actually checking out church for the first time and I'm, I don't know what I believe. And yeah, y'all just sang a song about the flow of blood. Like, that's a little gross. That makes me uncomfortable. Well, this is gross. Like, Jesus spit into the mud, and he, in the dirt, and he made mud, and he rubbed it on someone's eyes. That's gross. That's offensive. That's scandalous. It's, I'm sure the disciples were watching this and going, what are you doing? This is uncalled for. This is unwise, Jesus. Like, know your audience, Jesus. Like, if that happened in our ministry setting, if we started anointing people with our saliva— right? The church would close down. We wouldn't have anyone coming to this church, right? Because it's gross. It's supposed to be gross. You have to understand that. Like, we don't just gloss it. Like, let's pay attention to the Bible. Let's pay attention. Not just read and study. Pay attention. It's gross. You have to understand in Jewish tradition, especially if you read through the Old Testament, um, bodily fluids were considered unclean. Okay, so, you know, I don't need to list all of them for you. Blood, saliva, excrement, all the others, right? They were considered unclean. And we kind of get the wisdom from God on that from a sanitation perspective. Like, if the body fluids, bodily fluids of one person got on another person, then they were considered unclean and needed to distance themselves from the community. And so that was just probably some wisdom from God saying, yeah, don't spread that stuff around. But bodily fluids were considered Unclean. So you have to understand with Jesus doing this, it's not just gross because it's his saliva. No, this is ceremonially not okay. Like Jesus is breaking a whole lot more deep conventions in this moment than he would be if it was just in our day today. Okay? This is offensive. In Luke chapter 5, there's a man who has leprosy. And, you know, in the law, if you had leprosy and you touched another person, that other person was considered unclean. So you have to understand this kind of, um, the way this works, right? My bodily fluids, or if I have leprosy, or if I'm unclean and I come into contact with another person who is clean, they are now unclean. That's the uncleanliness spreads from me to him. But it's interesting, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus sees the leper. He has every ability to heal from a distance. He has healed from a distance, right? And a, and a leper would have been unclean. They would have been contagious. They would have been smelly. Jesus very much could have said, I'm going to heal you from over here. Then I'll approach you and minister to you. But he very specifically and carefully chose to walk to him and touch him prior to the healing. See, because when Jesus is here, what he does is he reverses everything going on with the cleanliness laws. It's not that the leper spread his uncleanliness to Jesus. No, it's Jesus spread his righteousness in love and cleanliness to the leper, and the leper was healed. We see the same thing going on here in John chapter 9. Jesus does something that appears to be unclean, but it's the very thing that brings healing and redemption. So you have to understand this is the cross. 
Like we have this view of the cross that is so sanitized by thousands of years of studying and looking at it, which is, which is not a bad thing. The cross is glorious, but the cross was bloody. It was rugged. It was gruesome. It was violent. And now we sing songs about Jesus shedding his blood for us. And that his blood makes us white as snow. It's the same thing. We believe that Jesus stepped into our world, that he experienced everything this world has to offer, the hurt, the disappointment, the pain, everything. And he took upon himself our sin and let himself be tacked to a cross. The message that this is what saves us the message that this is what cleanses us is ludicrous to the people in the scriptures. Wait, no, that's an unclean act that's happening there. It's gruesome, it's violent. And yet it's the very thing that makes us right with God, that reconciles us with God. So the reality of the gospel is this, and the sign that Jesus is giving in John 9 is Jesus steps out of heaven. The Son of God steps out of heaven. He comes into this life, and he gets into the mud with us. And he experiences life here, all of the sadness and the hurt, and he offers himself to be nailed to a dirty wooden cross where his blood would flow down the sides of it. An unclean, unconventional, scandalous act that would bring healing and redemption to the world. So you have to understand something. In the eyes of the Pharisees here, Jesus cleansing a leper by touching him, Jesus spitting into the mud and rubbing it on a guy's eyes, Jesus being nailed to the cross to the Pharisees is evidence that he is not the Messiah. Because the Messiah wouldn't do these unclean things. The Messiah would follow our rituals and traditions and conventions. The Messiah wouldn't go and get in the company of the weak. He wouldn't spend time with that prostitute. He wouldn't spend time with that sinner and that tax collector and that traitor. He wouldn't gather those 12 guys to be his disciples. No, there's some rabbis that would have been a better choice for him. All of these things, the fact that Jesus is condescending from heaven and getting into our mess and with weak people and ministering through unclean means like the cross means that he's not the Messiah because he's desecrating himself by ministering to and touching the unclean and the weak. Like, read the rest of John 9. I was going to do it this morning, just no way I'd have time for that. Read the rest of John 9, and you're going to see how the Pharisees just could not wrap their head around what Jesus did in John chapter 9. The Pharisees didn't want to be in the realm of spit and mud and a bloody cross. They wanted to be in the realm of ritual and control when it came to their faith where they can project themselves as strong and teach others that God is glorified in the strong, not the weak. But we were told this morning in John 9 that the works of God, the glory of God, would be displayed in this act of Jesus 
spitting in dirt, making mud, and rubbing it on a guy's eyes. Jesus, whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, that's Colossians 1.19, draws near to the weak, the sinner, the unclean, the guilty, the ashamed, the afraid, the sick, the cast out. He steps into our world, gets into the mud with us, takes on our sin, puts it on the cross, because God is most glorified when he gets into the mud with people and brings redemption. He's not glorified in blessing the strong. And so I just want to say, if, if, if you are here listening and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're exploring what you believe about Jesus, and your impression from the church about Jesus is that, yeah, he blesses the strong. He blesses the morally superior. He blesses those who have it all together. I, I apologize for the church teaching you a false gospel about who Jesus is. And that's why I want us to have a little family talk this morning. And when I say family, I mean all the church which we're a part of. And the kind of culture that we build in churches. Because the Pharisees rejected this part of Jesus and the church rejects it all the time too. You know, the implications of the gospel, all right, are in the shape of a cross. There, there's a vertical implication of the gospel. This reality that we read in our Bibles and we learn this truth about God that that Jesus has come for us, right? And he went to the cross to forgive us of our sins. He rose from the grave to defeat death. And that if we trust in Christ, that we will be saved. We'll, we'll have eternal life that will be forgiven of our sin. And this is vertical, beautiful truth about God's love for us in and through Jesus. But there's also a horizontal implication of the gospel, cross-shaped. The horizontal implication of the gospel is Jesus' words to us in so many places. John 17, 1 John 4, Ephesians 5, and many, many others that says this, I am calling you to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that I came. I mean, it's sound New Testament theology that I think we miss so much because we study this, but we don't pay attention. This theology of I am called to receive the love of God vertically and love others horizontally in the exact same way. And what happens, though, is that we get so good at receiving the love of God. We get so good at studying the love of God, teaching the love of God, uh, going and creating systematic theologies about the love of God. And we create orders of salvation, and we talk about justification and sanctification and glorification. And these are all great, amazing theology, and we know it so well, but our lived experience experience horizontally is not congruent with it. We study vertically that Jesus came for my sin. He wants to enter into the darkest places of my life and bring healing and redemption and that he'll never leave me, but that's not my lived experience horizontally. And so we have disintegrated follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, people who know the love of God, but they've really haven't experienced it 
to the extent that Jesus offers it to us. And so we have disintegrated believers. We have a church culture that prefers ritual and control and not spit and mud. Because spit and mud is nasty. You know, I used to be, uh, 15 years ago, I was a college pastor. And it was a fairly large college ministry. We were on five different campuses across Washington, D.C. And um, in that ministry, because, you know, we, we, the, the, the size of it, um, we had many, 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 many students involved who grew up in church and many, 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 many students involved who just came to Christ for the first time, uh, many of them through our ministry. It was fascinating. I, I, when I loved discipling the students who just came to Christ because they were so honest, man. Like, there was just no pretense at all. And so they came to Christ under the preaching of a gospel that says Jesus came for every part of you to redeem you, to heal you, and he draws near to you. And so they were kind of in all of that, they gave their life to Jesus. And so, yeah, when we would meet to, for discipleship and to talk and all that, I mean, they were just an open book. Yeah, here we go. Like, this is everything going on in my life. I loved it. And then I had so many students who grew up in the church. And they were spiritually formed. Not because someone told this to them verbally. They were just, through their lived horizontal experience in the church, they were formed to believe that God is most glorified in the strong. I remember two specific stories. Um, one guy who came into my office one day, and he was the son of one of our key uh, top church leaders. And he came into my office, and I can't, you know, I'm not share everything, but I mean, this kid grew up in the church. This kid could recite any theology. This kid had the reputation of being the ideal Christian. And one day he finally broke down, came into my office, and he just let me in of this double life that he had been living. And the shame and the guilt and the belief that this distances me from God and that God had, wants no part of this. He doesn't want to touch it. He doesn't want to come near it. And so he's lived this life of being the Christian leader, being the guy who knows the Bible, being the guy who disciples other people, and he broke one day, and he couldn't live it anymore because he believed that God doesn't bless the weak. I remember this one girl who came in one day. I mean, this girl, she won an award in her church for memorizing the most Bible passages. Her identity was that she was spiritually strong. And I'll never forget the day she came into my office and she told me that she was secretly selling herself online. And she had been spiritually formed to believe the church has nothing for her. Nothing. That is so far in the direction of unclean. What does the cross have to say to that? 
Both these people, their faith was pretend and their real life was in the shadows. And so, Grace Hill, this is why the mission of our church is we want to be a diverse community that follows Jesus, loves people, and is safe to be known. This is why we have a group philosophy at Grace Hill. The reason why we structure our groups the way we do is we want to have an environment where we're trying to make a place where it's safe to be known, where we're going to practice this horizontal gospel that we spend so much time vertically memorizing, where we're going to pay attention to what the scriptures actually say and live them out and create environments where you can admit, confess, share something as shameful as that, and you'll have a group of people who won't leave you. But we've had a church culture. So many of us have grown up in a church culture where you go, Alan, that's not my lived experience. No, people leave when we go to places like that. It gets weird when we go to places like that. They leave. But that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the reality that Jesus came and he got into the mud. He was with the unclean people. He went to a dirty cross to save unclean, weak people. God is most glorified in the reality that he does not leave you. He's not glorified in blessing the strong. But he enters into the life of the weak and he says, I've got you. I'm going to forgive you. And yes, I'm going to lead you into a new life. Yes, we are going to have a process of growth in sanctification. But it's under the banner of my grace, not under the banner of my expectations that you could never carry. Let me get back to my notes. The reality is that it's easy. It's easy to come to church and it's so comfortable to be in the realm of ritual and control. And it's hard to be in that realm of spit and mud where we're called to love each other in the exact same way that Jesus loves us. I know what I'm saying is pretty radical. That's exactly why Jesus says, if you would live that way, the world would know. They would see the gospel lift. Jesus is most glorified in your weakness. He wants to be close to the parts of you that you've been trained to hide. One of the things my therapist says all the time, my counselor... He says, Jesus is not content to simply heal the parts of us that we have agreed with him that he can have access to. He's coming for everything. He wants freedom and healing and redemption in every part of your life, not just a piece of it. And I want you to know this morning that the cross-shaped reality of the gospel is that he is going to do that through his people. It's how he chose to do it. That he is coming for everything in your life through his people, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let me, let me just say this. 
Like I know there's some of us, and I'm gonna say us because I see myself in so many of these examples I'm about to give. I know there are some of us in this room who just long to be respected and revered by others. Just long for that. And we're so fearful that people don't respect or revere us. And so maybe we've even built, we're, you know, we don't want, we want to hide that part of us. And so maybe we've even built a bit of a swagger or a confidence to hide the fear that's coming on and going on inside of us. And I just want you to know, like, Jesus is coming for that. He doesn't want you to pretend. He, didn't want, he doesn't want you to live in fear. Like, he's coming after the parts of you that are fearful and just long to be noticed and loved. Oh, there's so many of us in this room who are just so deathly afraid for our kids and what this culture will do to our kids. And we're so deathly afraid that they're not going to have every opportunity that we long for them to have. And we're so deathly afraid that they're going to feel pain and hurt and they're going to make mistakes. And so we control. So we grab on hard and we live our life in fear. And maybe sometimes even pretend that we're not living that way, but it keeps us up at night. And I just want you to, Jesus is coming for that fear. And I'm telling you what, there's not a topic in the church that you don't get people to look at you and say, you do not touch that like parenting. Because it pokes just the core of our fear and anxiety when you talk about our kids. He's coming for that. He wants freedom in that. He wants you to trust him in that. Man, there's some of us here who are just so sad by life and the circumstances and the, and the deal that, the cards that we were dealt. And maybe we've believed our entire life that what it means to be a faithful Christian, right, is to pretend that I am joyful in the midst of trial. So we never share that we're sad. Or some of us are angry or bitter in life because of things that have happened, maybe things that have happened to us in the past or whatever it is, and we're angry and we're bitter. But church has never been a place that we could talk about that because people leave. I want you to know that Jesus wants to come for it. He doesn't want you controlled by that anymore. Man, I'm like praying. I've been praying with the elders through the 2024 election that's coming. Man, the church cratered in 2020. And we cratered. Again, I'm talking big C church. We cratered because we were disagreeing over things like politics and policy. That's not what we were disagreeing over. It was fear, it was anxiety, it was distrust of the Lord. It was anger, it was resentment, it was hurt, it was lived experience. It was all of those things simmering underneath the surface. It wasn't about policy. And the church cratered. We just divided. We left each other, left and right. The church cratered under COVID, arguing about stuff like masks and vaccines and getting into debates, thinking that we were just debating health policy when, no, we were living out of our fear and our anxiety. And Jesus is coming for it. He's not content to have a church and a culture in the church that says we can't talk about the deep things going on inside of us that literally is controlling our life and our decisions. I gotta stop. 
Church, my longing, band, if y'all want to come on up. Church, my longing for us at Grace Hill is that we would be a place that unapologetically preaches the vertical gospel of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the only way to eternal life. The gospel of Jesus stepping into the mud and dying on the cross for us. And I long for us to be a place that ministers it to one another to the same degree of scandal and grittiness that the cross really was. Not a sanitized version but an actual version that we would pay attention to this. We have a Savior that is glorified by getting into the mess with us. That is where the, God, the glory of God is displayed, and that is the good work of the church as well. The work of the church is in the same places. And so this week, here's my call to us, right? Like, so this week, if you're a part of a group, I know community groups, time-wise, don't work for everyone, so I don't, I don't want you to hear me uh, uh, push you into a group if you can't make it. But if you're in a group, like go to group and lean in. We do a, a whole time in our group called uh, Safe to Be Known. And if your group's not doing that, your group needs to be doing this. Uh, safe to Be Known, where we, it's just a time where we share with one another what's going on in our lives. And we ask questions and we pray for each other and we engage. That is designed to be a spot where as we study the scripture, we actually pay attention to it and are obedient to it. We're not obedient followers of Jesus if we study and not do it. And so we've designed this space in our groups to be a spot where we could create this culture, where we could love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us. And so I just encourage you, go to a group. Get involved, lean in, ask questions. When someone's sharing their story, Pay attention. Give them your eye contact. Ask questions about their life. If they pop up into your head throughout the week, send them a text. I'm praying for you. I love you. I'm not leaving you. Because you know what will happen in our groups over years is we'll get to a place where people go, okay, I'm going to take a risk. And here's the risk. I'm going to share something that before I thought was not allowed to be shared. I'm going to see if everyone leaves. Or I'm going to see if it gets awkward. Or I'm going to see if all of a sudden relationships stop to drop off. And as we love one another in the same way that Christ has loved us, what happens is we become integrated as believers. Our experience or what we know vertically about the love of God begins to match my horizontal experience. And now all of a sudden I go, okay, this is a gospel I actually believe, not just aspire to. What a ministry you have in each other's lives. It's Jesus' design for the church. And it's gritty, and it's messy, it's not perfect. It can be awkward. It's the same as him spitting in the mud and rubbing it on the guy's eyes. And it's how Jesus wants to redeem and heal every part of your life. So let's lean into it. Lord Jesus, I pray for our church. God, I confess to you on behalf of the church that we have, over decades and years, we've created a church culture that just communicates to people that you only love and you only bless and you're most glorified in the strong and not the weak. Lord, that is a grave sin. 
just want to confess to you on behalf of the church, that is a grave sin against you and against the gospel. And we want to repent. You have called us to be a representation of your kingdom. And your kingdom is the place where the weak and the sinful and the blind are welcome because of what you did on the cross. And God, we come before you in repentance and say, if there's any way that we have done anything that has communicated to people that your kingdom is not that, we we confess and we repent. We need your forgiveness. God, help us as a church to be a place where we minister the gospel of Jesus to everyone, to every part of them. And we love one another in the same way that you have loved us. God, as we saw last week in John chapter 6, we know that for some, that is a hard message. And as you preached that message, many left you because they didn't want to be a part of it. And God, we know that it will be the same for us as you warned us of. And so protect us, God. Protect us from wanting to build empires and build platforms and not ministering the gospel and representing your kingdom as you called us to. I pray for our groups. I pray for our church. God, we're not perfect. We're, we're going to be really clunky with this, and it's going to be not easy. But I, I do pray that in time, your spirit would enable us, would empower us to create a place where people experience the actual gritty love of Jesus. Christ's name. Amen.